You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 40, on the Feast of the Holy Family. When the day came to purify them according to the law of Moses, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus up to Jerusalem so that he could be presented to the Lord. When they had fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee and their own town of Nazareth. The child grew in size and strength, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Two words leap out of the opening sentence in this short form of the Gospel for today, purify and presented. For the scene described by St. Luke in detail in the long form is that of the presentation of our Lord in the temple. And on the 2nd of February, a special feast celebrates this event. Why this particular date? Because the 2nd of February is the 40th day after Christmas. So what, one might ask with justification? And another thing, until 1969, this feast was called the Purification of Our Blessed Lady and was described in the old Roman Missal as the oldest feast of the Blessed Virgin. While one version of our Gospel reads, and after the days of her purification, today's version, and two others I've looked at, refer to their purification. Curiouser and curiouser, as Alice would have said. Jesus had been circumcised on the eighth day after his birth, but, writes Frank Sheed. According to Jewish law, two things still remained, the buying back from God of the child and the purification of the mother. Strange to think of the Redeemer redeemed and the all-pure purified. Strange indeed. And in fact, as the handbook to the liturgy comments, this title, which had been given to the feast, must be regarded as unfortunate and open to misunderstanding, since according to the teaching of the Church, Mary is completely sinless. And the handbook goes on. The historical commentary on the new General Roman Calendar, 1969, which notes the changes that have been made, observes Purification of the Blessed Virgin Mary. The name of today's feast is changed to Presentation of the Lord, thus making it clearer that the feast is a feast of the Lord concerned with the biblical events in the Temple of Jerusalem, which are reported in Luke, and in which Jesus, rather than his mother, is in fact the centre of attention. But the presentation took place 40 days after the Nativity, and this for a specific reason, writes Sheed. By the law of Moses, every mother of a son must for 40 days remain in her own house, avoid contact with sacred things, and not enter the sanctuary. The book of Leviticus puts it bluntly, in chapter 12, which is entitled Purification of a Woman After Childbirth. She must not touch anything consecrated, nor go to the sanctuary until the time of her purification is over. The liturgical year explains that, according to the Old Testament regulations for ritual purity, a woman was regarded as unclean for 40 days after the birth of a male child, and for 80 after the birth of a female. No comment. Leviticus gives us the details. When the period of her purification is over, for either boy or girl, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting a lamb one year old for a holocaust, 
and a young pigeon or turtle dove to sacrifice for sin. The priest is to offer this before Yahweh, perform the rite of atonement over her, and she will be purified from her flow of blood. Such is the law concerning a woman who gives birth to either a boy or a girl. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to take two turtle doves or two young pigeons, one for the holocaust and the other for the sacrifice for sin. The priest is to perform the rite of atonement over her, and she will be purified. Not only did the woman have to be purified, but the child had to be redeemed. A firstborn son, that is. Quoting Exodus, the Revised Standard Version puts it beautifully, Every male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And with this in mind, and since we're still in the octave of Christmas, and before we delve into the reason for this need to redeem a firstborn son, let's listen to a short extract from Anne Riddler's poem, Christmas and Common Birth. For birth is awaking, birth is effort and pain. To bear new life or learn to live is an exacting joy. The whole self must waken. You cannot predict the way it will happen or master the responses beforehand. For any birth makes an inconvenient demand. Like all holy things, it is frequently a nuisance and its needs never end. By God's birth, all common birth is holy. Birth is all at Christmas time and wholly blessed. The buying back of firstborn sons dates from the time of the tenth plague of Egypt, when all the country's firstborn sons were killed, and Pharaoh was forced to free the Israelites. Exodus 13 recounts. Yahweh spoke to Moses and said, Consecrate all the firstborn to me, the first issue of every womb among the sons of Israel, whether man or beast, this is mine. Moses said to the people, Of your sons every firstborn of men must be redeemed. And when your son asks you in days to come, What does this mean? You will tell him, By sheer power Yahweh brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, Yahweh killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, of man and of beast alike. For this I sacrifice to Yahweh every male that first issues from the womb, and redeem every firstborn of my sons. The rite will serve as a sign on your hand would serve, or a circlet on your forehead. For Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And so we read in the explanatory note to help us understand a mentality which seems light years away from us. In keeping with these regulations, Mary and Joseph brought Jesus to the temple, and Mary offered the sacrifice that purified her and at the same time ransomed her firstborn. And Frank Sheed adds this homely note. We cannot be certain, but it seems that what Joseph had to pay for the ransoming of Jesus would have been roughly the equivalent of two weeks of his earnings as a carpenter. Neither for the buying back of the son, nor for the offering of the two pigeons, which was what Mary and Joseph in fact offered, was it strictly necessary to go to the temple. But people as close to Jerusalem as these two were would have made a point of going. And they did. Mary would simply have dropped into the appropriate money box the price of the two pigeons for the sacrifice. What interests us, though, is the reaction of Anna, who realised that their child was to be the Redeemer of Israel, and still more of Simeon, 
who took the child in his arms and uttered words which set them both wondering. Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. You have fulfilled your word. For my eyes have witnessed your saving deed, displayed for all the peoples to see, a revealing light to the Gentiles, the glory of your people Israel. The prophet Isaiah had twice declared that the Messiah would be the light of the Gentiles, but it seems that the rabbis chose to ignore these texts, as if the great man had slipped up somehow. But now Simeon repeats these words, and what's more, he names the Gentiles first. Mary and Joseph, as Orthodox Jews, might well have wondered. And as the old man blessed them, he spoke even more startling words directly to Mary. This child is destined to be the downfall and the rise of many in Israel, a sign that will be opposed, and you yourself shall be pierced with a sword, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be laid bare. And a note on this reads, Christ came for the salvation of all men, but here Simeon prophesies what would come to pass, that many, through their own willful blindness and obstinacy, would not believe in Christ, nor receive his doctrine, which therefore would be ruin to them, but to others a resurrection, by their believing in him and obeying his commandments. And let's listen now to the poem by T.S. Eliot, in which he has imagined the thoughts and feelings of the old man whose destiny had now been fulfilled. He speaks of Roman hyacinths, because Judea was then under Roman rule, they're blooming in bowls because the Roman variety is a special type of flower suitable for forced indoor cultivation. Here, then, is a song for Simeon. Lord, the Roman hyacinths are blooming in bowls and the winter sun creeps by the snow hills. The stubborn season has made stand. My life is light, waiting for the death wind like a feather on the back of my hand. Dust in sunlight and memory in corners wait for the wind that chills towards the dead land. Grant us thy peace. I have walked many years in this city, kept faith and fast, provided for the poor, have given and taken honour and ease. There went never any rejected from my door. Who shall remember my house? Where shall live my children's children when the time of sorrow is come? They will take to the goat's path and the fox's home, fleeing from the foreign faces and the foreign swords. Before the time of cords and scourges and lamentation, grant us thy peace. Before the stations of the mountain of desolation, before the certain hour of maternal sorrow, now, at this birth season of decease, let the infant, the still unspeaking and unspoken word, grant Israel's consolation to one who has eighty years and no tomorrow. According to thy word, they shall praise thee and suffer in every generation, with glory and derision, light upon light, mounting the saint's stair, not for me the martyrdom, the ecstasy of thought and prayer, not for me the ultimate vision. Grant me thy peace, 
and a sword shall pierce thy heart, thine also. I am tired with my own life and the lives of those after me. I am dying in my own death and the deaths of those after me. Let thy servant depart, having seen thy salvation. Returning to the Feast of the Presentation, it's interesting to read that about the middle of the 5th century, it became known as the Feast of the Meeting, as a reminder that on this occasion, Jesus entered his father's temple for the first time, and there met Simeon and Anna. The feast seems to have been celebrated both in the East and in the West, as we see in the liturgical year. Egeria the Pilgrim tells us that about the year 400 in Jerusalem, a great feast was celebrated on the 40th day after Epiphany, which at that time was the sole birthday feast of Jesus, that is, on February 14th. There was a great procession to the Church of the Resurrection, where priests and bishops explained the events of Luke 2, 22-39 in their sermons. The festivities ended with a Mass, and there is already a candlelight procession connected with it. This feast may already have been known in Rome by the middle of the 5th century. According to later witnesses, a candlelight procession was connected with this 40th day after Christmas. It was intended to replace an ancient pagan procession of expiation that was celebrated every five years at the beginning of February in the form of a procession around the bounds of the city, Amburbale. The purple vestments prescribed for this mass, as late as 1960, recall the original penitential character of the feast in Rome. The candles carried in the Christian procession are a reminder that on this day, Simeon called Jesus a light for revelation to the Gentiles. A blessing of these candles was added before the year 1000 in Gaul. Needless to say, it was the blessing of candles and the carrying of them in procession which gave rise to the popular name of Candlemas, which gave little indication of the real theme of the feast, comments our liturgist. But, as Pope Pius XI wrote, The annual celebration of the sacred mysteries is more effective in informing people about the faith and in bringing them to the joys of the spiritual life than the solemn pronouncements of the teaching church. Feasts move and teach all the faithful and influence not only the mind but the heart and man's whole nature. And it is the heart which usually prompts popular piety and the customs which have their origins in these feasts. True, they may sometimes blur the essential significance, but they play their part in keeping the feasts alive. There was an old Celtic lambing feast which fell round about Candlemas, and later it was incorporated into the Christian festival and when England was still Catholic, snowdrops were picked in celebration of the purification of Mary. One of the earliest makers of Christian liturgy was St. Gregory Thaumaturgus, the Wonder Worker, a bishop in Neo-Caesarea in Asia Minor in the early part of the 3rd century. When he took possession of his see, there were only 17 Christians there. When he died, there were only 17 pagans. Maisie Ward writes of his methods. In the countryside, Gregory recognised the need to win people to Christianity through a certain gaiety to transform, not destroy, their ancient joys. 
Saints' days were to be kept with high festival. A populace baptized and transformed through the Christian message would learn later to worship with greater awe and solemnity. He was concerned to preach divine truth accurately to these simple folk, but not to curtail their pleasures. For a 20th century Trappist monk like Thomas Merton, the scriptures were enough to fill him with joy. He writes in his journal, I just read the Gospel of the Purification, one of my favourite feasts. It's so beautiful that I'm all lighted up with lights inside, and there's a feast in my heart. After his account of the presentation of Jesus in the temple, Luke doesn't go on to tell us of what followed this event in Jerusalem, the visit of the Magi and the flight into Egypt. Instead, he leaves us with a delicate thumbnail sketch of the beginning of that time known usually as the Hidden Years of Nazareth. The child grew in size and strength, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. There's a time in all families when the children and their parents are public people, and another time when, all external commitments honoured, the family withdraws into itself as the tortoise into its shell and forgets for a while that the outer world even exists. So on the Feast of the Holy Family, let us leave them too to themselves and withdraw discreetly and in silence. <laughs> 